From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. We've been doing it every week for almost eight years now. As you guys know, for the last two years, we've been opening the show with a COVID segment, trying to stay on top of the world of COVID-19 in some of the same ways we try to stay on top of the world of sports analytics. Every now and then, we bring a guest in to enlighten us, to fix us from being pure dilettantes. And this week, we're delighted to welcome onto the show uh, a colleague here at the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. John Wary. He is the chair of the Department of Systems Pharmacology and Translational Therapeutics. We're going to find out what that means. He's chair of the Department of Systems Pharmacology and Translational Therapeutics. He's also the director of the Institute for Immunology here at UPenn. Adi and our conversations last week was, we need an immunologist. We got to get an immunologist. So Dr. Wary has been uh, accommodating here. And John, we're glad to have you. Thanks for making time for us. Well, thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be here. Well, let's start off with a little definite. Let's, fi- let's fix some terms. What is the Department of Systems Pharmacology and Translational Therapeutics? What does even translational therapeutics mean? Yeah, this is the traditional uh, Department of Pharmacology that most medical schools have. And uh, somewhere around eight or 10 years ago, the previous chair decided that we needed to modernize that concept. And so what we're really doing in a Department of Pharmacology at a medical school is thinking about how drugs affect our bodies, how we can sort of listen to what happens when we treat with drugs, and how we can exploit new discoveries to make better drugs and better therapeutics. So as science changed and we're all thinking about systems and big data, we realized that we needed to actually incorporate big data and the ability to monitor what happens when we treat patients and people with drugs. So systems pharmacology means taking advantage of big data. Translational therapeutics means, you know, let's actually study what happens when we treat patients with drugs and therapies. That sounds great, but it's also a little surprising it wasn't happening before. How, where, how do you come up with these drugs if you don't study what happens to the patients when you administer them? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. I think it's, you know, it's a bit of rebranding, right? So it's a bit of modernizing the concept. So um, I think one of the things that happens at Penn that's really, really amazing is we try to learn, uh, we try to learn something every time we treat a patient. You know, so you think about it, you go to your drugstore, you get, you get some medicine, you go home, you take it. And it's supposed to affect the thing you got the drugs for. Um, But, you know, we don't learn a whole lot more about what happens. So when we treat patients in the hospital, we're trying to actually learn as much as we can while we're also treating disease. So many Mm -hmm. drugs have many, many different effects. And we want to actually make sure we capture that information to make new drugs even better. So, John, let me ask you, obviously, something we study and, you know, Shane, Adi, and well, Adi somewhat, but Shane and I are certainly card carrying Bayesian statisticians. So we worry about heterogeneity all the time. How much do you guys worry about, you know, not just, let's call it the average performance of a drug, but the heterogeneity with which it affects people's systems? And maybe that's part of the reason why big data plays such a role to try to understand that heterogeneity. Oh, that's exactly right. I mean, we're all different, right? I mean, all of us have unique features of both our genetics, which is a big part of how we respond to drugs. But also as an immunologist, we all have different immune histories. We may start with the same genes, but everything we've experienced in our life actually imprints our immune system. So that heterogeneity is actually a big part of what we want to try to capture. And it can be problematic if you don't know what it is and you don't know how to accommodate it. 
but it can also be a huge, huge resource if you can take advantage of that variation to actually identify new patterns. And so I think that's one of the big goals of our department and a lot of the research that we do. One, one clarifying question. Can you give us an example of, you, you just said this provocative thing, which is probably taken for granted in your field and is, sounds new to someone as distant from it as me, that we're, we, we, we were born with a certain genetic predisposition immunologically, but then life events affect our immunology. Can you give us an example of what we know of a life event affecting our immunology? Other than the obvious ones, like people are immunocompromised because they're taking, um, you know, chemotherapy. Sure. I'll give you, I'll give you two quick ones because they're, I think, really important and we may get into this more. Um, the first, we know that autoimmunity, for example, is a disease that has genetic components, but your genes only explain about 30% of what we call the penetrance of autoimmune disease. So you can take identical twins that have the same genes and only about 30% of the time will they actually be concordant in developing the same kinds of autoimmune disease. The second thing we know, um, amazingly, your birth year will determine how you respond to influenza vaccines for the rest of your life. The first strain of influenza that you get exposed to actually shapes all future antibody responses you make to flu, not in ways that are dramatic and that really, really change how protected you are, but in ways we can definitely see. So this idea of an immune fingerprint or immune imprinting that occurs throughout our life that actually uh, we think is, is really important, may explain some of the things we're seeing with COVID, uh, can certainly explain things like autoimmunity and maybe even the way we respond to cancer treatments. So now Adi Kate and I are going to have to see this. We're going to have to compare our histories because Adi Kate and I were all born the same year. That's true. That's true. It's like, it's like you know, know. The, the, the year of the goat or something. Real, real, <laughs> one last, one last follow up real quick. And Adi, I'm going to get out of your way. <laughs> this is the self-help version of the show. Uh, I, I, are there behavioral things that pushes people's immunology around good or bad? Oh, absolutely. Certainly, um, you know, the three things that I always talk about, so diet, exercise, and sleep, they all affect your immune system. We're just starting to figure some of this out. Diet is probably the place where we have the most information. We do know which diets can affect your immune system, and, and we're starting to understand how that works. Um, but, you know, regular and consistent sleep and exercise all affect the way your immune system can regenerate and stay fit and functional. Good. All right. Okay. Odd's been trying to jump in here and he's the yeah. one who requested you. What do you got, Adi? <laughs> I did. I w before I actually asked my question, I wanted to make an observation, which was related to our immunological history. Um, as of yesterday, my, my mother has four children and 11 grandchildren and all 15 have had COVID. Um, my one last COVID holdout was my daughter and she's now sick. Um, and just wonder whether all of us are susceptible. That's why no, no escapees. Um, and, and, or it could be that we all share the same behavioral characteristics. That's just an observation. I'll just throw that out. My question is much more, and this has been burning with me for a very long time, and I want to get it, try to get an answer to this. Um, we as statisticians, of course, are epistemologists. We, we, design, we help design experiments to understand what we know, what we know. And the original design uh, the controlled experiments that were done to test the vaccine effect efficacy, the mRNA vaccines that we are all, most of us are now using, were designed to, uh, were, were able to show clearly, very convincingly with beautiful random controlled trials that the, the vaccines prevent infection. They had about 168 infections in the treatment group, in the, in the control group, and I think three or four or some very small number in the treatment group. It was, an, it was a slam dunk. It should have been stopped earlier um, in, in terms of infection. But then what ended up happening was that was essentially the last clinical trial run on those mRNA vaccines, at least of any size. And then it turned out Delta rolled along. Omicron just destroyed it. 
it doesn't prevent infection. It doesn't even prevent infection at all. Or we can argue about the degree. We have observational studies as the only thing at our, our disposal. And that leaves me with a, a question that I'm trying to figure out. We have learned from looking at the data that the vaccine is extremely protective at preventing serious illness and, of course, eventually death. And my, my, that leads to, to this. Is this something we've seen before in vaccines? Or is this the first time that this has happened? So uh, the, one, the vaccines that, that I give my, you know, we give our children, that we've all had as children, the, you know, the measles, mumps, rubella, and all the smallpox, polio, do they work by preventing infection or do they work by, by preventing serious disease? And is there a precedent for this really rather amazing, oh, I've been calling miracle, that it can't prevent you from getting infected, but it prevents you from getting sick? So I'm so glad you asked this question. This, I mean, we could occupy the entire time talking about this. I won't drone on because uh, <laughs> that's why my wife reminds me not everybody wants to hear all the immunology. Um, but this is uh, a mea culpa for the entire scientific community. We saw those curves that you're talking about in those first clinical trials where things just flatlined at day 10 after the first dose of mRNA vaccine. And all of a sudden, we forgot our 150 years of like, you know, clinical vaccine development. Um, we saw, as exactly as you said, at you know, a couple weeks after the first dose, we're not seeing any infections. So there are a couple things. One, we were protecting at that point against the same strain that was in the vaccine. So we didn't have beta, we didn't have delta, we didn't have Omicron for sure. So the bar was low. The second thing is that after, in the short period of time after you get a vaccination or infection, your antibody levels are sky high. And they're especially high also in places like your nasal passages and, and your upper respiratory tract. So we were looking at a time in those vaccine trials when circulating virus levels were relatively low compared to the peak we then had in Omicron. And we're also looking at a period of time just very shortly after vaccination. And we all got kind of lulled to sleep with this, oh my God, these are the best vaccines we've ever made. We're home free. The reality is no vaccine provides what we call sterilizing immunity that we know of. And what, what I mean by that is prevents any cell in your body from ever getting infected. And that doesn't usually matter because if you stop 95% of it, you don't get clinical disease and nobody knows. It's the tree falling in the forest kind of thing. If nobody's around to see the little bit of infection in your nose. It didn't happen. The place where that matters is an HIV where the virus actually integrates in your DNA. And if one cell gets infected, you're in trouble. Now, to go back to what you said, we have all these other vaccines. Don't they work better? Well, people give the measles example all the time. Measles vaccine prevents all infections. It doesn't. If you're vaccinated against measles, and there's a study that shows if you put that person in a room full of it was kids with measles, the vaccinated person gets infected. You can find virus in their nose. The virus is replicating, but they don't get sick. And so this is what vaccines really do, especially for respiratory infections. It is so hard to maintain active immunity in your, the passages of your nose and you know, your upper respiratory tract, that these vaccines always should have been thought about as vaccines to prevent severe disease and infection. And the minimizing of um, sort of asymptomatic or mild infection uh, should have been viewed as a transient effect that was going to disappear over time. And so that means that, you know, we should be looking at blocking transmission to some extent, but really the goal is keeping people out of the hospital, keeping our hospitals working, preventing severe disease and death. So let me follow up with that, because I think it's yeah. important to recognize that our trials were, didn't 
there weren't enough sick people in, in each arm to Correct. determine that. Why didn't we continue running trials? And why we start trying to do this observationally, which is so difficult considering so much confounding and, and, and I don't want to drone on about the issues of, of observational studies. Why don't we just continue trials? And particularly with say boosters, when they were, you have, we, have, we have people perfectly willing to go six months without taking that booster, get tens of thousands in each group and see and get real answers to these questions that we've been kind of futzing with using, if using a non-technical term. Yeah, I mean, we should have in some ways. I think there are a lot of pressures in, in, in different directions on this. So, um, you know, in retrospect, we should have. I, I, I do think that some of us were, um, you, you know, I think a lot of the scientific community looked at those first curves and thought, oh, my gosh, this is way better than we ever thought it could be. So we sort of may have got to put our guard down a little bit. Right. And, and so we should be honest and own that we should be more humble about this virus and, and this problem and this pandemic. But clinical trials like that are incredibly expensive. They're incredibly mm -hmm. logistically difficult to do properly. The statistics, as you guys probably could comment on, are non-trivial when you start thinking about this. Um, and sustaining that at a time when just the physical ability to do trials was severely challenged. Remember, we shut down hospitals. You know, we were shutting down all surgeries and starting to think about shutting down cancer treatments and, and running trials in that setting was extremely, extremely difficult. The problem is you're racing against the clock of trying to get vaccines out. Once you know that they work at all, we're trying to vaccinate as many people as possible, making the trials even more challenging because it's harder and harder to get the right control groups. So there are trials going on right now with an Omicron-specific booster. One of those trials also includes giving the Omicron-specific vaccine three times to people who have not had any vaccination yet. Can you imagine how difficult that's gonna be? If you haven't been vaccinated at this point, there's a good reason likely <laughs> you have an opinion about vaccination and don't want to be vaccinated or there's some other challenge, right? So, so we're at the farther along we go, the more we're introducing biases and other constraints to doing trials really properly. So I think we have to live in this imperfect sort of world where we have to learn from observational studies while also thinking about the best possible prospective trial we can design with a small number of people to maybe learn more by going, going in depth with the kind of information you can get from the trial uh, and then pairing that with what we know from observational studies. So it's, it's a very challenging thing to do. I, I completely agree with your point. Um, the real world makes it um, more difficult than, than where we were when we first started the, the first trials. Given this kind of reframing of kind of the success of a vaccine has more to do with kind of preventing kind of serious illness or kind of, you know, sort of downstream consequence for the virus rather than actually preventing it from, okay, you know, being communicated between people. How does, how does, how do these COVID kind of vaccines rate kind of historically to other other things like measles, et cetera, like, like, you know, like, 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 I, I don't know, I guess it's about 10 times, you know, 10 times, you know, protection of, against sort of serious consequences relative to unvaccinated. How is that relative to, you know, the flu or measles or polio or some of these other things? Yeah, it's a great question, Shane. I mean, so let's remember this, the, you know, we haven't written the last chapters of this story yet. So I don't think we can say with confidence how they compare, because we don't know about durability yet. And durability is one of the key things here. But when we look at the data we have so far, it does look like it's about 30 times uh, better protection, right? So if you're vaccinated, you're 27 times less likely to die and you know something like 30 times less likely to end up in the hospital. That's pretty good. Um, compared to other respiratory infections, we're probably in the same ballpark. 
So, you know, our yearly influenza vaccine can sometimes only be 50% effective at reducing disease. And, you know, that's still a big deal, especially if you're older than 65. So we're better than that. Um, we're probably not as good as some other things like smallpox, measles, polio. Um, but you can't take those numbers just in isolation. So if you have a virus like measles, it's one of the most transmissible viruses we've ever known about in humans. You need a vaccine that is exceedingly good. Otherwise, you're going to have spread in the community. For other viruses that don't spread quite as efficiently, uh, you may not need the vaccine to be that good. So, so only looking at one side of the equation, I think, kind of leads to an imperfect comparison. For this virus, especially Omicron, you know, we were surprised. And this thing is now spreading incredibly efficiently. So it's coming close to the transmissibility of measles. We need vaccines that are really, really good. Are mRNA vaccines as good as the measles vaccine? I don't think we know the end, the end of the story yet. They're very good, but they may not be as good as some other, what we call live attenuated vaccines that we've used in the past. So, so John, one of the things we do in a business school, besides just measurement, which is obviously important, how effective is the vaccine, et cetera, is think about you know, optimization. So let's talk mm-hmm. now about optimal treatment. So you could imagine there are so many factors that could go in. Like, for example, do we know which of the, possible mRNA vaccines are most effective? Or I've always said, should it be an obstacle course? Should I get some Moderna, some Pfizer? How about the spacing of timing? How about my immunization history? How about my age, my comorbidities? In statistical terms, you could imagine a model with hundreds of thousands of interaction terms trying to figure out how to opt. Let's imagine we could do individual level patient. Maybe that's the dream someday, individual level patient uh, timing, which drug, how much dosage, et cetera. Are we on a path to eventually getting there using big data science, hits, immunology, and translational therapeutics? Yeah, I mean, I think we may get close, right? I mean, I think that, you know, as this pandemic evolves, uh, it's going to be increasingly difficult to have what I'll call sort of the pure vaccination history setting, right? All you ever got was two or three doses of, let's say, Pfizer, just to call one out. Well, then you got exposed to Omicron. That was after your second dose. Then you went back to get a third dose, but they didn't have Pfizer. They had Moderna. And so you got that. It's getting increasingly complex. And tracking all of that effectively is really hard. So I think what we're going to get. So the answer to your question is we do know all of those things matter. We do know mixing and matching can have important um, effects on the immune system. Think about a little bit like cross-training, right? It's sort of training your immune system a little bit different ways because you're showing things differently. We know that the spacing, the timing between exposures of your immune system matters a lot. And, you know, this is, again, like exercise, you need some rest in between. You know, if you go exercise, you know, three times a day and give your body no time to recover, the gains are going to be minimal. So all of those things matter. What we're going to end up with, um, I think, to your data collection uh, question is a lot of smaller studies that look at uh, various permutations of that uh, in sometimes in depth, sometimes a little superficially. The the challenge for us in the big data um, sphere is how do we actually put that together piecemeal? How do we actually fill in the missing pieces of data between 17 studies that look at combinations and some of them measured something, some of them measured other, other things. And I think at the end of the day, when we have to make a decision, you know, we're going to end up in this position where you'd really like to have 95% of the information to make the decision. But the reality of the world is you never have complete information. And sometimes you have to make really important decisions with less than 100% of the information. 
And that's where we're going to be. And the question for you statistical guys is, you know, what's enough information to make a confident decision? And um, I think that's going to be the challenge. We're calling for collection of data like you're talking about. We should have in the United States the ability to measure antibodies on every American. We can do it from a technical standpoint. The question is more logistical. How do we implement that? How do we collect the data? And how do we put it in a place that we can make decisions from that? And if we had that, we could start to address your question. It's interesting that you bring up the idea of collecting new information on individuals. I've been almost carping on the problem that we don't integrate our data. And it has made answering even fundamental questions so difficult because of the terrible mismatching and lack of sourcing and terrible, um, we, don't, we, we don't have a database. And forget about a national database. We do not have a localized database. John, we've only heard Adi say this every week for the last two <laughs> yeah. and a half years. You know, Keep going, I'm gonna, Adi. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just tell a quick anecdote because I, I told you my daughter is now sick with, with, with COVID. She's in Israel. Um, she went to the corner, to the pharmacy or whatever, just on, with an antigen test. That's all it was. And that got put into her file, registered with her database, and and with her vaccine, with her everything is there. They have a really nice way to count everything in the country, and 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 we aren't able to do that at all. Which means that we just get an absolute mess of information. So I want to ask two questions. One is, do you think that we vaccinated um, with the two doses too quickly? And the reason why I bring that up is that I was I was lucky enough because of my affiliations with Chop to get on an early list. So I got vaccinated at the end of January, um, and. The schedule was two weeks later, get, your, get your, your Pfizer shot. And I talked to some of my doctor friends and they said, that's really fast. Yes, or three weeks later, three weeks later. It was three. Uh, yeah, three weeks later, uh, I did not get Moderna. And uh, we were talking about it and the history of vaccines is generally three months for the booster. Yet we were doing three weeks and I wasn't gonna break the, the three week code because you know I'm not gonna about to go out on my own. I did the three weeks, but I felt uneasy about it. And now we have a lot more data. Do you think that that was too quick? Yeah, um, so there are a bunch of really interesting questions there. Um, so first, um, let's go back to January of last year. And we needed to get people immune as quickly as possible. We needed to blunt transmission as quickly as possible, right? To protect the people who couldn't get vaccinated yet and so on. So I had a lot of debates with my, my friends about this. You know, should we just give one dose for the time being, give more doses to more people? Should we space out the doses? Um, and I came down very much on the side of saying, no, let's follow the, the either three-week or four-week interval, depending on which mRNA vaccine, so we can get people fully immune, whatever that means, as quickly as possible. I still think that was the right decision at the time. We now have data from Canada and the UK showing that if you space out those first two doses, you might get a little bit better immunity. But in the time you're waiting, between that first dose and that second dose, you're not fully protected. And, and so I think we know that now. We know that it puts you at risk and may actually give you partial immunity that could help drive variants, that could help spread, and, and so on. So I think there was um, a pandemic decision made to get people as immune as possible as quickly as possible. We have other vaccines where you do uh, uh, first dose, Second dose, you know, a few weeks or a month later, and then a third dose six months later. Hepatitis B vaccine, that's what it is. Um, the anthrax vaccine, which we don't use that often, the first couple of doses are actually pretty close together. So there are other examples of this for other vaccines. Um, and so I don't think it was necessarily a failure on, on any, any side uh, there. Um, should we space it out now that we know more? Probably. Um, and, you know, again, 
we still have people who should be vaccinated who haven't been vaccinated yet. And can, can we convince them to get vaccinated? Um, you know, I think we, we should be taking a look at all of the things we've learned and adjusting from here. Can we collect all the data and organize it properly? Uh, you know, this is something that, you know, we're never going to have nationalized healthcare in, in this country. I mean, I think, you know, we could talk idealistically about, you know, what Israel does in Scandinavian countries in the UK. But the reality is we could collect a lot of data anonymously across the population and learn a lot. We could also link things like testing to treatment. You know, imagine if we had antigen tests in the U.S. that had a QR code. You just scan it. It actually links to either your healthcare provider, your local pharmacy. You come up positive, And two hours later, you go to your pharmacy and pick up your antiviral drug. Imagine how much transmission we would stop if we did that. Instead, you have to sign up for a PCR test to confirm. That's a couple of days. Then you get the result of that. Then you get your prescription. By that point, you've spread it to whoever you're going to spread it to. So (laughs) figuring out how to actually collect the data properly and funnel it into actionable decisions, I think, is one of the the key things we can learn from the pandemic. And we we might have a window of opportunity to make some of those changes um, if, if we can do it the right way. So as we think, you know, I guess for Omicron, I guess we're at letter O. I don't know that there's been an A through O at the moment, but what do you foresee happening going forward? Like given, given the number of people, let's say in the United States right now that have been vaccinated and boosted and given how many people have gotten Omicron, how much a collective protection do you think we have? And is it likely that there's going to be another variant coming that may end up even, you know, uh, you know, a lot of us that have had uh, boosted itself and even people that have had Omicron that they'll get infected again? Yeah. So this is this is the key question, right? So what are our potential scenarios from here? So uh, let's start off with the easy thing. There will be another variant, right? That's what viruses do. The virus is in you know, wildlife, it's in deer, it, you know, there are viruses that we can sequence from wastewater, we don't know where they're coming from, they're not coming from humans, they're not coming from deer. So, you know, the virus is around, there will be another variant. The question is, two questions, two part question, um, how consequential will the new variants be? And how quickly can we react to them when we see that they're a problem? So uh, I think that we have, you know, the estimates of how, what percentage of, of Americans have either been infected or vaccinated at this point vary a little bit because we don't have great data, but it's probably higher than 85%. I've seen estimates at 85%. I've seen estimates at 92%. I don't know what the real number is. Um, there's a real difficulty with self-reporting of people having been infected. And we know that that's about 50% accurate. So trying to figure out what the number is based on um, just estimates of spread is, is uh, also not perfect. That's going to protect us as a population to some extent. It's going to protect us from severe disease um, in young, healthy people. The problem is that people over 65, people who are immunocompromised, are still going to be susceptible. And with how transmissible this virus is, like measles, if you don't have 95% or more of your population immune, you can still get spread. And that's because you can get spread in some people who are vaccinated, they don't get sick, and so on. So, my guess from here, is that uh, it will be unlikely and difficult for another Omicron virus to emerge that has that impact. We may may see viruses that are as mutated, but we've got parts of the immune system that don't care so much about some of these mutations. We have these things called memory T cells that recognize the virus completely differently from antibodies. They're probably protecting us to some extent from severe disease. They're probably limiting how many people are getting to the hospital. We're gonna see other waves 
we're going to see the virus come back and cause infections. The question, I think the key question for all of us to think about, is it going to be like our seasonal respiratory infections? Is it going to be like we typically see for flu? And to you know, put it out there, and people may not realize, flu kills on average 30,000 Americans a year in like a good year. It can be much more than that some years. 100 so is, our, a, is a bad year. 100,000 is a bad year. Exactly. You know, 2009 or whatever it was, was, was around 80, yeah, 200, One of the things, people. John, sorry to interrupt for a second. One yeah, of the yeah. things we talk about on this show all the time is effect sizes and trying to give people orders of magnitude. Yep. And so if you see that, you know, right now, maybe 2,000, 3,000 people a day are dying from uh, COVID, you multiply that out. If that number holds for 365 days, that's 25 times on average the number of people dying for the flu. So we always do try to say to people, you know, what is the effect? Are we talking about tens of thousands for the flu versus hundreds of thousands for COVID? And that is the order of magnitude difference at the moment. That's exactly right. The effect side, the opioid epidemic is about 100,000 a year in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, that's a a chilling statistic to to put on the table with this as well. You know, Much younger people too, much younger. Yeah. Right. So that's the other thing. So who, who are the people being affected by, by uh, COVID? So the best case scenario from here, like if we start today, when Omicron's coming down, looking out the next 12 months, would be that we see no more variant emerge, that we see this tail go out the way it is, that we see vaccination rates sort of stay about where they are and creep up. We're talking about best case scenario, uh, like an average to an above average flu year, you know, 30 to 40,000 deaths from COVID. I think that's unlikely given where we are and we're going to see another variant come up. It's going to blip. We're going to see effects. But if you take into account what we call attack rate, so like how likely is it that you'll be infected and what we call um, uh, infection fatality rate or case fatality rate. So what's the percentage of people who are infected who die? You get an estimate that somewhere between that low end of a typical flu year and a high end of somewhere around 300,000 deaths in the next 12 months. And at 300,000 deaths in the next 12 months, you know, it's better than we were last year, but you're still talking, that's not spread out evenly over 12 months, and it's not spread out evenly geographically. You're still talking about at that high end, healthcare shutdowns, hospitals that don't have beds, ICUs that are overflowing, and medical um, healthcare providers that can't treat people with heart attacks, strokes, and other diseases. So what we need to do is think about what do we have in our toolkit that we can use to push things more towards that typical flu year when we see a new variant show up in wastewater or we see, you know, a drop in our antibodies at the population level in May and June. And we say, hmm, what does that mean when we go into the fall when kids go back to school and we start changing behaviors again? So we have to be able to recognize these signs that we can pick up from data we're collecting and have the, the tools in our toolkit to react to them rapidly and efficiently. John, what, what evidence do we have that we can react rapidly and efficiently. We, this has become a theme in our discussions in the last couple of months, the need to do that, the need to have some agility because things are so uncertain. We start out on one path. We need to be able to both make the decision and communicate it effectively. Do we, it's a lovely idea. It's a kind of a necessary thing to improve. What's the best evidence that we're capable of doing that? So what has changed in the, in the last two years that shows uh, we're actually learning how to do that? Yeah. I mean, listen, you know, Everybody can be, uh, you know, a Monday morning quarterback, you know, uh, 100%, an, arm, an, arm, 100%. an armchair expert. So I want to be careful because there's there's plenty that let's just say there's plenty that we've learned from over the past mm-hmm. two years. Um, but you know, we've done an amazing job. I mean, we give credit where credits due. 
BARDA and warp speed made vaccines an order of magnitude faster than ever before in human history. We deployed vaccines at a scale that we've never seen. We've been able to get testing ramped up over the last six months to the point that actually, you know, in the past six weeks, the change in testing availability has been astronomically important. You know, great. You could say, I wish we had it in October, but we've got it now and we can do it. Um, so there are a bunch of things we can do. So, John, I'm with I'm with you. And, and so <laughs> one thing is you're dropping into a conversation where we're pretty free being critical, but we also call ourselves out on not being too much yeah. money, money quarterbacks. I mean, hell, we're statisticians and analysts. We hate this kind of, you know, evaluating decisions by the outcome. So what but so, so all that's an excuse for embracing the criticism here. But it's not really a criticism because agility is so hard. So what's yeah. different about the examples you just gave and what I'm asking is, is the pivot. And, and, mm-hmm. and institutions are not known for pivoting. Governments are not known for pivoting. You know, populations aren't known for accepting different advice three months later and just saying, okay, we'll do something different. It, the pivot is the hard thing to do. And, and what, what you're naming, but also what we've named from some others, is the need to be able to pivot. And so I'm, I'm wondering where, that, where, where we are cultivating that ability. Where, where are the pockets of encouragement on our ability to do that? Yeah, you know, you're exactly right. And, and you know, our, our ability to pivot is not great at, at scale, right? We've not been able to pivot at scale all that well. Um, these vaccines, the mRNA platform in particular, let's remember that from the time we had the first sequence of the virus, the time the first person was immunized was 66 days. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's being able to pivot. When we see a new virus sequence, as a country, we should say, Let's make that vaccine before we even know whether we need it at risk and let's pay for it and have it on the shelf in case we need it. That's pivoting to say, okay, we didn't know, but now we know that thing matters. And there's seven other ones on the shelf, but let's pull that one off. We can go now in six weeks, we can have it ready for people. That's the kind of pivoting we need to do on the vaccine side. I think we can also do it in other settings because of what we've learned we haven't done it really well on testing, but I think this Omicron wave has taught us some things that we needed to know about deploying testing and being able to do that rapidly. So, you know, I'm optimistic, but we we have to do better on pivoting. I completely agree. I guess I'll come in pessimistic in that a lot of the <laughs> a lot of the pivots I see, like you just brought up the pivot, like what we need. One pivot that would be helpful is actually having surpluses of things in mm-hmm. anticipation of future need. That's obviously not profit maximizing on the part of manufacturing or hospitals. Hospital, you know, hospitals, in my view, are always going to be perpetually overwhelmed because the way a hospital is designed is to, if there's any kind of robust, uh, you know, kind of robust design there that's not maxim- profit maximizing, it'll probably get removed. Like ho- hospitals operate on the edge of being overwhelmed, you know, just yep. kind of by their very nature. And so a lot of these pivots, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of the good pivots you know, so are, are, are things to kind of increase robustness of the system and kind of prevent these to happen, go very much against the actual, like, you know, design of these institutions. It's not just so much a sort of an inertia to institutions not being able to pivot. It's their very design or how they're run is kind of antithetical to these pivots. Yeah. And I think this, this brings up the need for thinking about things like advanced pers- purchase agreements from the government, right? So you have to actually make that economically feasible to stockpile things and think about supply chain issues. So I agree. That's what we need to do. You know, I want to follow that up because what's happening is because we don't have that surplus capacity, 
we end up choosing other interventions to try to block problems on the other end, like like lockdowns and all kinds of restrictions on their population movement, which have a questionable ultimate benefit. But uh, you know, countries that seem to have more surplus capacity, say like Denmark, they're in the midst of the Omicron, just as we are. They have enormous numbers of cases. They have a, a pretty high vaccination rate, but they've said, you know, we can handle it and we're just gonna keep things just as they are. When, when a, a city or a state decides that they don't think they can handle it, they wanna shut everything down again. I don't think the population will stand for that. And I'm gonna you know, piggyback on what Shane said earlier. We've seen massive increases in mental illness, opioid uses, car accidents. All these things are the direct in, uh, or direct or indirect result of policies and not pivoting. Yep, I couldn't agree more. And I think that we have to get to a point where uh, our interventions don't need to um, employ shutdowns the way we have. I mean, there, it's clear that with vaccination on board and population immunity, the benefit of complete shutdowns is going to be not what it was at the beginning. It was beneficial at one point to save the healthcare system from collapsing. That's not a risk most places now. What we also need to think about is managing in, in a more local way, right? It may be that in whatever, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, the rates are so high that we need to think about implementing some changes there, but those changes don't need to be implemented in say Philadelphia because we're in a different mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. So solving the local problems needs to be something that we embrace and think about, you know, not a one size fits all uh, solution for the entire country. So let me ask you a question from an investment perspective. If Dr. John Wery, chair of the Department of Systems Pharmacology and Translational Therapeutics and director of Institute for Immunology at Penn was given dictatorial power, and you were given $100 billion to invest. <laughs> Going forward, would you invest that $100 billion in making us a better vaccine or in making us better therapeutics going forward? Yeah, I think better therapeutics. Um, I think, you know, our vaccines are pretty good. Um, we're not using them, right? So 64.5% of Americans vaccinated. The vaccine's fine. You know, we know what the virus is going to do. We don't always know what the people are going to do. Therapeutics, I think, are, are much more critical right now, and we have a bigger gap there. So very simple. That is the correct answer. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> That's what I was asking you. But, no, no, but my point really was, I'm glad you brought up, my point really was going to be about the gap. There seems to be a much bigger gap on the therapeutic side than there yes. seems to be on the vaccine side. All right. Great note to end on. John, thank you for making the time. Terrific conversation. Really appreciate your carving out some of your day for the show. Well, thanks for having me. This was a, a load of fun. Um, I really enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Good luck with your work. Doing good stuff over there. We wish you the best with it. That's Dr. John Wary. He is the chair of the Department of Systems Pharmacology and Translational Therapeutics. He's also the director of the Institute for Immunology, both here at the University of Pennsylvania. That has been Q1. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wart Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you via Zoom here on SiriusXM. We used to be live. We've been recording these things mostly on Tuesday afternoons lately. They go up on Wednesday in the normal SiriusXM slot that we get them up as a podcast later. You guys can jump in in some way. We love to hear from you. You can follow us on Twitter, post comments, holler at us on Twitter. Our handle there at W Moneyball, at W Moneyball. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports analytics and we'll take anything you got, praise or criticism or just provocation. Also, you can send us emails 
We have a mailbag via email. The address there is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read everything that comes in. We'd love to hear from you. We get as much as possible of that mail onto the show. All right, guys, we've got uh, a short little Q2 here. And the obvious thing to talk about is the Super Bowl. It's Tuesday. We've got a, we've had a little bit of time to come to terms with the end of football season. How did the game go down for you? What about the Super Bowl caught your eye? Oh, can I start? I, I, had a, I had a great Super Bowl. It was a fun time. And I made a few bets, just low, small bets with friends, and I won them all. So totally resulting, I know, looking at the, the results of the bets and, re- and thinking that reflect back on my wisdom. It doesn't, but it was fun. <laughs> Good. Glad you had a good day with it, Bradlow. Hey, we both we we both predicted the right uh, Gatorade color, right? That's right. That's right. We yeah. the school asked us all for for predictions, and some of them were quite silly, including not only the coin toss but the color of the Gatorade. But Shane and I put some thought into it. You know, if you're picking the round, oh yeah, there's I mean, analytic. There's some deep yeah. analytics. Hey, I actually, you know, I actually think I was watching an old Patriots a recent Patriots Super Bowl, and it had blue. And I think okay. that's why I did it. So, I mean, that is technically some analytics, right? That Using is history. Analytics. Using I history. Say, yeah. Can I just point out that I jumped in on red on that one, and then I went and looked up that that has never happened. So I realized that was a terrible bet. And it was a plus 1,200 if you were actually betting on it. But oh Kate, and I, Kate and I were actually quite sophisticated in a one really small sense. We took all the unders on the mm-hmm. prop bets. Mm-hmm. Um, I had listened to an old, uh, um, you know, bet the process with Rufus Peabody. Yeah, exactly. And he had mentioned that, and I'm like, I, I heard it. Through a through a podcast, Kate Kate heard it directly from Rufus's mouth, I guess, and uh, and that those three came in. So it's an ex- it's an example. Sometimes it's just good to know what direction the bias goes. It's hard to know. It's hard to get things calibrated perfectly. But if you know, people tend to be biased one way. You can lean the other way. And if people are biased towards taking things, Rufus puts it. I think he, they expect things to happen. They like to bet on things happening, and so the yep. under is usually a better bet. Eric, yeah. So I think when I look back at the game. I think I realize how, you know, obviously the score was close. So this is, you know, trite either way. But these games are decided on, you know, one or two plays. And, you know, I'm not even referring to the great plays of Aaron Donald at the end, which were superhuman. I'm not where he shed a blocker and tackled the guy with one arm, a 240-pound guy running at full speed. I'm not even referring to that. But to me, the game was won. When Matthews, and by the way, it's why I'll toot my own horn a little bit. I thought Cooper Cup would be the MVP, not Stafford, because I thought Stafford would make a few mistakes in the game that might prevent him from being the MVP of the game. But regardless, when Stafford threw the pick that went off the backup to Odell Beckham Jr. Skransky or whatever his name is, hands, and then got picked off, and the Bengals had the opportunity to go up 11 points, and then Aaron Donald made his first sack, and then they only they held him to three. I was like, if the Bengals had scored a touchdown there, given how badly the Rams offense was playing at that point, I actually thought the Bengals would win the game. I thought that was the turning point in the game, holding them to three and keeping it as a seven point game. And but again, there were a couple of plays here and there that really changed the dynamic of that game. And it was close the entire way for people that said the Bengals weren't a worthy opponent. How wrong were they? That was a worthy opponent there. And uh, it was a great football game. I thought it was a really well-played game. It's, re- it's remarkable, really, that it was that close. And, I mean, I, the, the, the stat that is most yeah, I coming one. out of it is that the, the pass rush win rate 
was the highest all season or the, the, the lowest all season for this Bengals line, 18%. It's just remarkable the kind of success the Rams were having getting to Burrow. And I mean, it, given that, given that, that they were winning until the end of the game, that they needed a questionable defensive uh, hold call in order to get it done. Oh, well, I mean, they, were, they, were, they were in it because of a completely missed face mask too. Well, see, this that's fair. That's fair. I don't like it, but it's fair. This is these kinds of calls. You know, we notice the one that yeah. happens at the end. We don't notice right. the one that that's the first play in the second half or whatever. No, but you bring up a great point, Kate. I mean, I should forget about Aaron Donald's play. You just brought up. I forgot about the, you know, in my view, non-pass interference, pass interference called on the linebacker Wilson, where if that's not called, I'm not saying they don't win, but I mean, it's fourth down mm-hmm. and then they may not have scored there. And then they still have three timeouts, but they're down four, remember, at the time, not three. Yeah, 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 and they're yeah. not at the one-yard line. Adi always talks about them between the one-yard line, and maybe they were at the six or the seven. It's totally different. The win, matter of fact, that one call, I haven't seen the the uh, results on what the change in win probability was to that one call. But it's got to be well over, you know, anything over 5% is a huge call. Right. This was at least a 5% win probability play. How do y'all feel? If we are going to differentiate these two missed calls, they, they, they were missed in different directions. And, they, and so one, I'm really self-serving here because I was pulling for the Bengals. Um, but with the Bengals, I, I felt like, oh, you know, I mean, give the receiver a little credit. He got away with it. These guys are always kind of pulling on each other and pushing on each other. And if he's able he to get away tackled, with it. He tackled a dude with the face mask. I Not mean, in really. terms of a, in really. terms he of a, turn his head a little bit. He twisted it. I mean, I mean, I, the, the two moments differ. One is much more egregious. That face mask was, was a much more egregious missed call than the actual holding. I mean, the holding penalty, again, I think it was a little ticky tacky. If I was the ref, I wouldn't have called it, but it at least was, you know, on the edge. Okay. Of so, being okay. I think you're yes. right about, I think you're right about both of these things. So here's my the last consequence in here, terms of timing of the game is different. Okay. So that's, that's, there's two different issues here. One is, is there a difference between acts of omission and acts of commission? I, I would rather them keep their flags in their, in their pockets more yes. in general. And especially as you rate, as you say, the, the moment, it was a bad moment to, to, to jump in, you know, someone referred to baseball umpires and it reminded me of some of the data we've seen from folks in the past, the umps, they, they, if my memory serves, they don't like to make the call that is decisive, that puts a guy on base or, call, or strikes him out. They, 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 they tend to err towards whenever you get to, yeah, they, they tend to yes. err towards continuing. So if, if it's, it's only really two, they're more likely to call a ball on a pitch that's at the corner. That's ambiguous. And similarly, when it's three, you know, they're yeah. more likely to call a strike on a pitch that's at the corner. Right. And so on those grounds, I would have liked even more for them to abstain in a moment where it was ambiguous. It was on the, it was on the, it was on the edge, that call. Mm-hmm. And it was such a vital moment. But I'm and I think the thing, the point, the point you made is it, earlier, I think is really apt is that receivers are always doing like a pushing and the thing. And I mean, in basketball, we see that too. And the question is, and, and the really the question I can often ask myself as a non, you know, really non-experts far from it. Um, uh, at what point do you probably, every play has a little bit of holding. Every play has a bit of sure. pulling and shoving sure. and interference. Totally. Don't and so totally. That, I, it, I, I, I would. I would urge you to rewatch. I mean, again, no, if you're using that to explain that particular <laughs> yeah. offensive pass yeah. interference, I urge yeah. you to watch it again. 
It's it funny. Is not it's the, funny. It is not the typical kind of ticky tacky happening no, on every not. play kind of stuff, right? It's a person it who is dragged down by their face mask, and then the person who did that was wide not open loose. to catch like a seventy yard <laughs> touchdown pass. I mean, it was funny. That's how for we being, play in the schoolyard, right? Yeah. For, for being that I mean, obvious, you're wearing face masks. Right. For being that obvious, we didn't notice it real time. Like when it happened, it looked like, okay, nice no, play. Right. What happened? But Ramsey, you could see Ramsey's reactions. He was like, what the heck? What the heck? He got up it's, and was like, did he was like, nobody what? see, you know? Yeah. And so you figured something had to go on. Yeah. All right. So we have quickly gone into the officiating on this thing. Yeah. What, what else? Here's a, here's a question for you. We have someone tweeted about this as well. Just reminded me of the analytics community has come to believe that sacks are a quarterback stat this is one of the like shifts that have been asserted and we even talk about you know some quarterbacks like to take a sack or two because they're holding on and they get more chances that way like russell wilson likes to he's willing to tolerate a little more risk some guys just have better pocket presence we've lauded burrow on so many different dimensions over the last year to what extent does he deserve any blame for the number of sacks he just took a record number of sacks in the playoffs Okay, fine. I hear you. I mean, I get the pass rush win rate. That's cool. We've never had those stats before. But I do believe also this observation that quarterback sacks, the sacks are a quarterback stat. So what do you got on that? Well, they are to a degree a quarterback stack, but I want to follow up with this. Burrow is responsible for them and to a certain degree, how much depends, right? Because he holds on to the ball a lot, which does mean that when he does succeed, he succeeds much better. So if they're right. winning 18% of their rushes, well, he gets more value out of the remaining nine, you know, 82%. And, and so it's a kind of complication. It's like, I mean, he's accepting a bunch of stat of, of sacks in exchange for doing better when he isn't sacked. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just, I mean, it, it means it hard to interpret the value of a sack. Is he even but, holding on to the ball? Unusually long? Is, I mean, this is something that yes. we could analytically, yes. right? Yes, he does. 2.35, I think, or yeah. he holds, there's, there's numbers that say he holds on to it a lot. Yes. I, no, I, was I gonna... mean, I certainly think that sacks can be a quarterback. Like Carson Wentz or whatever definitely generates a lot of sacks because he holds on to the ball an unusual length of time. But it, where, where is Burrow in that distribution? I, uh, so I saw the same piece of data that Adi's reporting that he holds on to the ball for a long point of time. I don't know where he is in the distribution, but I agree. But also, I like the way Adi framed it. It's very interesting, which is let's assume he's thinking of the he's not. But let's pretend he or the offensive coordinator are doing the following calculus. Our offensive line is not going to win often. When we win, I can't just throw a two yard out. I got to throw it big. And so. I have to go for the big play because if I don't get the big play, we can't, I won't get enough small short plays because of our offensive line losing. I actually think that's not a bad way to think about the problem. Well, except it, 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 it's a chicken and egg thing because you can really help your offensive line out on those little successes by drawing up schemes that get the ball out quicker or doing screens. I know, but what I thought, I agree with that. But what I thought during the game was that it became certainly in the second half, became obvious to me in the game that the Rams knew that they were going to win with four men and therefore screens were not going to be effective because they could press the line of scrimmage. It just became obvious to me. They knew they were going to win at the line of scrimmage every play. And the Bengals knew that. And the Rams knew that the Bengals knew that. So let let me ask, you know, this really points out something very important that football is really hard to analyze uh, that sacks are, are, aren't, aren't worth the same value to the same team. 
And that makes it really, really difficult to figure out what the value of such a sack is. Um, anyway, I think we're getting close to the end of time, so we'll just end it up. Well, uh, we, we, we may pick up a little bit more Super Bowl in Q3, but we're a little short on time this time. We had a, we had a, a, a extra interesting COVID conversation in Q1 that drags us into it a little bit. A chance that the Bengals make the playoffs next year. What do you got? What do you give me? Quickly, Shane. Two-thirds. Two-thirds. Make the playoffs? That, that's the, that's make the, the playoffs. Make the playoffs. That's the rate. Two-thirds. Eric. Seems good to me. I'll go with that. Why not? And I'll go with higher. I'll go with uh, 80%. Oh, my goodness gracious. Two-thirds is the baseline rate. I'm, I'm below all you guys. There's no um, mean reversion needed. They were 10-7 and seven this year, right? There's no mean reversion needed. I don't, ha- they didn't, I don't need to revert. 10-7. and seven. That's fine. All right. That has been Q2. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second half of the show. Just came out of a short Super Bowl segment. We might pick up a little more football at the tail end of this one. But we have a number of sports to talk about. We've got the whole crew here for a few more minutes. We've got Shane Jensen here, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow. This is Kate Massey. Guys, the Olympics roll on. The, uh, are you taking in much of them? Is anything jumping out to you? Um, I hate to see the drug testing stuff. It was just last week we were talking about this 15-year-old precocious skater out of, out of, out of Russia, and here we go. Let's not – I mean, whatever. What, what has caught your attention in the world of the Olympics? Well, one thing I should just do a shout out for is, uh, I mean, the observation that in women's hockey, in men's hockey, you know, it's kind of, it's truly a global sport. I mean, you know, conditioning on, conditioning on having a winter, it's truly a global sport. There's like four or five teams, I think, have a legitimate shot of like at least making it to the finals in men's. In women's, it's so clear that the, the disparity between the U.S. and Canada and the rest of the world is still so stark. Huh. The, the, and I mean, the Canadian women's team has been as crazy in five games. Dude, they've outscored their opponents 54 to eight. That's OK. It's best 54 decent. goals in five games in hockey. <laughs> didn't the, the U S play Canada already? Yeah, or first game, first game of the whole thing was U S yeah. Canada in the, in the qualifying round. Um, and yeah. they, they jumped to a big lead. I don't know if they won or not, but they were up quickly. I was surprised. Um, is that a Title IX victory? Is this the? I think so. I, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I think we're seeing in a lot of these kind of sports that are at least technically global that have been become global on the men's side. I think, you know, Title, you know, eight. I, I mean, I think that's what's given you know, kind of the U.S. and Canada the jump over these other uh, countries in on on the, on the women's side. Yeah, it reminds me a lot. Soccer and, and now, too. I, well, Shane just picked up my point. I was going to say it reminds me of what happened with soccer to start. And now, of course, that's that's a more mature sport, which is fortunate, because let me just tell you, women's soccer is fantastic to watch. As a matter of fact, I get more excited to watch women's soccer games than men's soccer games because the speed of play, the action, there's more scoring. Actually, they've they've studied this. There's more scoring in women's games than men's games. But the women's soccer team used to, you know, win like, like let's just give them the gold medal to start. And now that's definitely not true anymore. And I think I, I like the parallel you were just made, Shane, between hockey and soccer. And I think I, I don't know how many Olympics you think it'll be before it's more competitive to a broader range of countries. But I would say at most two Olympics from now, like eight years is probably enough for there to be five or six teams for it to be competitive. 
What's the story on this Norwegian biathlete who might win the most number of medals in the history of the Winter Games or most number of goals? Yeah, Riceland. I, I think it's most total medals. I think she could win six. I, I, or yeah, I mean, she no nobody's ever won six medals at a Winter Olympics. Um, how how is it that there are so many? biathlon events this is confusing to me it's a little bit like well, the swimming i mean i i you know right i mean and so this i i love the fact they're talking about this because if the same person can win across six events maybe you don't need so many events <laughs> of course i bring this up every time in the summer olympics with swimming and everybody's like no no we definitely need four different styles by three different gender oh, categorizations by 15 yeah. different lengths. We definitely need all those medals, even if the same person wins like eight of them. Okay. I th- this is a, no, this is a really good question. Back to this kind of our tournament design, our yeah. recurring tournament design question. How would one come up from scratch, decide how many different events specialties were optimal? Take the, well, I don't know about, uh, let's not use the word optimal for a second. Let's use the word maybe distinct. Couldn't yeah. we do what we do in, you know, statistics and marketing research? Couldn't we do a, like, I don't know, a factor analysis and do a, dim- or some sort of dimension reduction technique, yeah. see how many unique factors or if you'd like sports or really dimensions of performance there are. And then if you wanted to call that optimal design to that, that's what I would do. Yeah. Me, and I mean, me, I, I let like me just, that. Uh, oh. I mean, Go it's ahead, a good Adi. idea, but I, I want to defend swimming from the from. I knew the you were. I knew I knew uh, Adi would come in, and it is related. I mean, in swimming, no one wins more than four individual events, and the, and to get more than that, you have to have the teams, and that's where that comes in. The biathlete, uh, I think they're winning. She's winning six individual well, events. Some of those are team. Um, no, no, some of those are. Team oh, those are team events as well. Like re, they do relays. That's where 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 it kind of comes in, and 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 essentially, you don't any see anyone winning long distance and short distance and swimming or running. Those are the, the distinct areas. So that is part of it. But there, there definitely is a bias like we're seeing in, in professional sports, more playoffs, more, comp- you know, more, 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 more. And at one point, does that turn around and make the competition well, less exciting? Yeah, we'll, we'll take a simple, we'll take a simple one just to pursue this concept a little bit. How, just take a simple one, just one, you know, whether it's men's or women's distances in track meets. So you got a yeah. hundred, you got a two hundred, you've got a four hundred, you got eight hundred, you got a mile, you got a probably like a five k three mile thing. Like how what how did no. we decide how many different distances? Well, right, and I think the distance is like I mean I agree with Audie's I mean a Audie's point that you want to kind of take the team medals kind of out of the calculation. Yeah, I'm setting that aside. I'm uh, setting that aside. Totally concede that point, but like as far as like you know the fact that like oh swimmers with short distances like don't we win the long distances i could see that but i guess in swimming and maybe in biathlon the problem is you've got too many of these intermediary like you know, like i don't know how do you know it's distances. too many I'm well just, I, I, again is, is if, it all just so, path so, dependence if the same athlete cuz if if we consistently see that the same athlete can win across like three different distances say for example then I think that's an argument to collapsing those okay. distances. We, we do want to allow for exception, like this could be just this, this Norwegian an exceptional, exceptional athlete. Yeah. If, if this rarely happens, or, you know, we don't want, you know, Michael Phelps obviously is a unique individual, or yeah. Eric Hayden and Eric Hayden from our, from our, yeah, yeah. Uh, you were a little young for this, but when we were, oh, no, I remember him, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I I mean, you want to kind of allow those outliers to happen. It's sort of like, you know, you almost kind of want to look at the general kind of rank order correlation of performance in these different distances. And if there's not much in kind of across athletes in that, 
that's, I think, when you start thinking about, oh, do we really like are some of these distances maybe redundant? Redundant. That's what it comes to. And the truth is that we're just it's just a bunch of path dependence. We're doing it because we've always mm-hmm. done it. But it's just an interesting question. Like some of them have probably evolved to be somewhat optimal and some have evolved to be something less than optimal. I was just going to follow up on your point, Kate, about uh, track and field related to that. I don't think there's anyone that's ever won three distances at track and field. Like uh, there's been, you know, Usain Bolt has won like the 100, 200, but never the 400. No one's Mm -hmm. ever won those three. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. someone may have won the 400 and the 800, certainly the 800 and the 1500, but that 1500 person never wins the 5K or the Mm 5,000 meter. So I think in that sense, it's nicely spaced in track. However, The one person that's been, and this is, I would consider maybe one of the greatest athletes of all time in swimming, I do appreciate this, is Katie Ledecky. I mean, her ability to win, I'm pretty sure she won sprint style races at 200 meters and under, and clearly she's the greatest long distance swimmer of all time. That's extraordinarily unique. And and maybe to your point, Kate, I don't want to get rid of all the different swimming races because once in 500 years, a Katie Ledecky comes around and just because of her, we're going to get rid of all these different swimming lengths. The normal. Oh yeah. We would never want, we would want to acknowledge outliers kind of transcendent athletes and kind of take, it would have to sort of be consistently the top athletes are kind of winning this across these events. Well, let's let's do another, another way to do it would be we could rank the multi event medalist for difficulty like ex- yeah. expect medals over expectation given right. the disparity of the event something like that yeah. to give us some sense of these five six seven medals <laughs> come on we should just celebrate them but we're geeky analysts so this is what we do it's, it's a factor analysis that's what you were saying that's what right? i said i said yeah. from the beginning that's what we should do and by the way we could debate whether you should do it on the times or the rank orders that you said adi i'd be happy yeah. with yeah, i'd yeah. be happy with either let's let's talk <laughs> about the reverse because obviously i've always talked about momentum on this show and you know I'm a big fan of I'm a big believer in momentum, but I'm also now becoming an even more and more believer of negative momentum. And so let's take a look at one of the great, I guess, shocks because she was so favored in so many events. Michaela Schifrin, the U.S. skier. And, you know, let's be clear, the most one of the most celebrated skiers of all time, I think 47 World Cup victories, two time gold medalist and one silver medalist. Let's be clear. No one should cry for one of the greatest female athletes of all times. However, she's competed in four events, as you guys remember last week. Two of them she didn't finish. Matter of fact, she didn't even finish 10 seconds of the slalom, or I forget, maybe the other one was the uh, the soup. No, it wasn't the Super G. I think she, maybe it was. It was this, yeah, she, she did something in the slalom, whatever. The first two events she did, she didn't even finish. She just did the downhill where she came in 18th. She did the, I think it was the Super G. Maybe she finished. She came in 13th. She's decided to do two more events. One's the combine, which I think is the downhill and the slalom. And then there's some team event. But at some point, I mean, she was two and a half seconds behind the winner. At some point, maybe she just has to say, this is not her day and time. Like, I do understand she wants to perform, and that's important psychologically. But it would, put this way, I would consider it one of the greatest feats in all of Olympic history if she could come back and win an individual medal, given her performance in the four events that has preceded this, whether it's mechanics or psychologically, et cetera. It, there has to be a negative impact of the four events she's had on the fifth event there just has to be well no question and i think at that level it, it just speaks to how much of it is mental and in in these individual sports i mean she doesn't lack for any technique or training she is coming back from an injury but but the but the 
these guys are so sensitive to what's going on in their minds in at this level. And, you know, she went out, she blew out on the fourth gate of the first event. And it, for me, it, whenever I hear that she finishes 18th and downhill, my first reaction was that wasn't very good. My second reaction was, well, I think finishing is a victory. You know, yeah, after those first two, she blew out on the fourth gate of the first two events. I mean, now she has to go out and you know what it means to race downhill skiing? These guys are flying like 80 miles an I know, hour. But she does have, the- I just want to say, so the baseline, not the base, I don't know how many events she's competed. She is a two-time World Cup champion in the downhill. She's won yeah. downhill race. It's not like this is the first time she's riding the downhill. I agree. Her expertise is clearly in the slalom and the giant slalom. But she has shows you how great yeah. she is. She's won the downhill races and, yeah. so, and recently. Yeah. So, yeah, I look. I'm not saying it's not amazing, but you can understand. Let's imagine instead of doing 99% on the edge, you're 95% on the edge because you've just had two crashes. Well, that gets you two seconds behind in 18th place. And so it's not hard to believe in some sense. You know, I don't, I don't want to call it the law of large numbers or the central limit theorem, but maybe she's moving towards the center of the distribution on every turn not to fall down yeah, for or sure. to crash and then yeah. add up. Oh, 250 turns and there you have it 18th for place sure. that's for it sure. for sure no and it's, i mean i do think we're sort of dealing with some kind of version of the skiing yips or something like that yes. the, the, you know and so like you know i mean maybe there's value kind of to as kate sort of said to like just completing these runs kind of you know even though you know maybe she has to kind of cut dial it back such that she's not going to be competitive for the podium in these subsequent races but maybe just, just kind of completing these runs getting over those yips kind of for yeah. like you know whatever comes next basically yeah yeah and it, it might it might also mean that a, there's a bit of a strategy of you don't you, you don't want to blow out on the fourth gate of the games and that might have just turned a real real unfortunate that she was just slightly too aggressive at the top of her first race listen we're going to lose eric in a second so i want to catch a couple things here that he noted before he rolls away. One, I was delighted to see, you know, that Scotty Scheffler won his first PGA event. He won over in, uh, in wasn't that the Crazy Phoenix one? It um, was the Crazy Phoenix one. So I, Scheffler catches my attention because he's a Longhorn. If I'm talking about an obscure golfer, it's probably because he's a Longhorn. But Eric, you're talking about the fact that it, he, he went to 25 before he got his first victory. It was his 71st start. Is that's it really not that it. Un, is it. That's that not un- my point. No, 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 no. My point wasn't that he's 25, because let me just tell you, there's 99.9% of pro golfers that would be happy to have their first victory by the right. age of 25. My point right. was he had four runner-ups, four top tens in a major, shot a 59, um, has been very successful in the Ryder Cup. So it's given his observed theta, okay. his observed okay. ability, it's okay. surprising that it took to age 25. But no, um, the fact is he's one of the top 20 golfers in the world. By it, I mean, every data suggests that he's been that way for the last three to four years. Well, and even so, the, right, the Ryder Cup last year as well. He just, he just came off of a good Ryder Cup performance, right? Oh, a tremendous time. Ryder Cup performance. And so, and a matter of fact, he beat, John Rahm. And I yeah, think he right. him, I was either four and three or three and two, I'd which is a beat that. down in the, in the Ryder Cup. And that was Rahm who was, who was so perfect up until that point. He was yeah, supposed to be Yeah. So yeah. I'm just saying, all I'm saying is congratulations to Scotty Scheffler. And by the way, to show you again how hard it is to win golf events, with five holes to play, he was three shots down. That's no, absurd. And so, again, these guys, you know, he just buried a bunch of holes. The other guys didn't. And, you know, there you go. And then he beat Patrick Cantlay, 
who's no potzer either, who's yeah, also right. another one of these great champions recently. He beat Patrick Henley on the third playoff hole. So he did everything right. And I hope, I, I don't know why, something about his game I love. I hope Scotty Scheffler wins 20 more tournaments in go. the next five that's years. A, that's, has, a good long, that's a good longhorn for you, Brad. Has, has, did Tiger Woods being kind of those so dominant specifically on Sundays, do you think he's kind of skewed an entire generation's perception of how much <laughs> yes. do change? Is yeah, you mean you mean I, you mean Shane? He's like fifty and two with the lead going yeah, into no, Sunday. Yeah, no, basically, yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's just you know that that's not usual. You kind of think of the scoreboard on a Sunday moving around a lot more often than a lot, lot more than that. It's a great observation. Before Eric leaves, we have to get his reaction. Our 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 friend Daryl Moore finally got his trade done. People people waited. People wondered. He persisted, and for better or worse, he got it done. You like James Harden on the Sixers, Eric, at that cost? So a thousand people have asked me this question, not surprisingly. And let me say first what I like. I like exactly what the Nets did. I'll tell you why. I like what Ben Simmons provides to the Nets because they don't need someone to shoot the ball. They got Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, who are two of the greatest scorers in the history of the NBA. And then they added Seth Curry, who's leading the NBA in three-point percentage at 43.7%. So I love what they did by adding Ben Simmons. I love them adding Seth Curry. I actually think Andre Drummond was having a very successful season as a backup center for the Sixers, and he will do the same uh, with the Nets. So let me just start with the Nets. I love what the Nets did. Now, at the Sixers, here's the question. How much better is James Harden, who's slightly injured, who is 32 now, who you have for only a half a year? Maybe he'll sign. He says he's going to sign next year, but at $48 million, how much better is James Harden than Seth Curry, Andre Drummond, and two first-round picks? Not obvious to me. It's not obvious to me. However, remember Bradlow's rule, and I'll end with this. When the best player on your team is your center, you can't win the end of games. So now let's find out if James Harden can win us the best, can win us at the end of games. Because I'm confident, even without James Harden, we're good for the first 45 minutes of lots of NBA games. Let's see us in the last three. So can James Harden be the finisher we haven't had since Jimmy Butler? If the answer is yes, then I'm all for it. But if the answer is no, because we look, we didn't give up Embiid, obviously. We didn't give up Tobias Harris. We didn't give up Tyrese Maxey. We didn't give up Matthias Theibel. We didn't give up all the players we didn't want to give up. If Harden can help us finish games, great trade. If not, I like what the Nets did. But, but you mean finish games this year in particular, right? I mean, this is very much a, yeah, and probably next, next year, but, he, yeah. but, but we, we're playing it's really a, well. It is we kind got, of a it, win now kind of move, right? This is, this is, this is what I'm saying. And, and here's a question. The obvious question is, did what the Rams do this year shift our thinking on the wisdom of the win now? Yeah, I think we did. I think it did because, look, even though he's only 30, Aaron Donald doesn't have five more great years left in him, not great as he's been. I don't think Jalen Ramsey, even at his age, cornerbacks aren't great at 30. I mean, Daryl Green, Deion Sanders, a few exceptions. I think Joel Embiid is an injury-prone big man. Do not expect him to be LeBron James and playing great at the age of 37. It's not going to happen. These are Joel Embiid's years. You've got two, three, maybe four, at best, really great years of Joel Embiid. To me, and he's clearly, in my view, the MVP of the league this year. You have to do everything you can right now to win a title because Embiid is as great as he is now. I mean, so I am all for the win now mentality, and as, as I was for the Rams to do so as well.
I, I, I'm much more supportive here for whatever reason than with the NFL. I, I think we may learn the wrong lesson for the Rams. I don't know for, I mean, we don't, I don't know, but I, it, there's so much uncertainty on even the very best teams winning Super Bowls. Definitely and much I, more, much more in the NFL yeah. than in the NBA. Right. You right know, can right. I, can I pop in and ask a question about what the Sixers gave up? Because you, you, you make an analogy to football and in football, giving up first round draft pick is a really big deal. Giving up a first round draft pick in basketball is a really big deal if you're at the top of the draft, but it That's falls right. off very fast. And I think even one of the Sixers picks is protected. I'm not sure exactly what that means, um, but they're not giving that much up in terms of future selections in the draft. And remember, Ben Simmons wasn't even playing for the darn Sixers. So it's like worthwhile for the Nets, but not so bad for, for, the, for the Sixers. Uh, so I t- also talked about it with some friends over the weekend, and I made the observation that this might be one of the first positive sum trade in, NF- in NBA history. Like both teams did well because Ben Simmons just wasn't doing anything for the Sixers because of a variety of conditions. We, we see those. We, it's entirely possible that both teams can, it can be wise for both teams um, for, for money because of fit. Um, yeah. It happens. It happens in a number of sports, maybe not as dramatically as it does here, man. If Harden really works out for the Sixers, it's going to, it's going to be a, a, a possibly a real nice illustration of that. Cause Eric makes a nice point on Simmons. Simmons was negative value for the Sixers and it's possible given how many scores the Nets have that he's going to be, I mean, people I, I've, I've heard from, I've heard from folks in the, the Sixers organizations that they have, they thought he was good, but whenever they saw the team without him, they learned a little bit more. They, they even have a deeper appreciation for how, how much he was contributing. And so he's got real assets on the floor. If he can be, if he can, if he can't be expected to take those shots at, at crunch time. So maybe, maybe it does work out really well for both of them. The, I, I'm, I'm a little bit probably too much trusting in Maury in this one. He obviously runs a very astute shop, but also he has been on the precipice year after year after year and just never quite been able to get over the edge. You know that he wants a championship, the singularity of a championship, as much as the players do. And I, I just have to believe this calculus is based on that objective. And, 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 and he saw this as the way to get there. And I, and I think your point, kind of in comparing the NFL to the NBA, that's the, the, the kind of central thing is that I think in the NFL, even like sacrificing kind of draft picks for like kind of win now players, that win now strategy is even more inherently uncertain in the NFL, because I think the outcome yep. is just more inherently uncertain. Like, I think you can go win now mode in the NBA because, you know, some, like you, you can add a piece that increases yeah. probably your probability of winning a championship by like 10, 20, 25%, yeah. you know, on yeah. that kind of scale of things. Whereas in the NFL, even if you can't, you know, any one piece or any set of pieces doesn't really, I think, you know, affect the, the, the probabilities of, of, of winning the Super Bowl are, are pretty low for any one team, even with all these kind of moves factored in. Mm-hmm. So I, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, you kind of, ha- it's, it's you know, a function of just b- kind of bigger teams. Like the talent is just less kind of centralized on three, four or five players. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Unless, it's... unless that player is a quarterback, <laughs> in <laughs> which case they, the quarterbacks are kind of, I think a unique one in this, you know, because well, I mean, the, the Rams would, uh, the Rams would, I think even not retrospectively would do that Stafford trade any, every day, every time. So d- you know, Stafford was highly thought of kind of his entire career. He was the number one draft pick. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then he was just, but it's hard to be highly thought of at such an underperforming organization. And so I think there was a fair bit of skepticism about what he would do when he got out there. And those who saw the potential in him deserve the credit. So I think Dan Orlovsky is kind of famously taking, you know, like victory laps on his praise and it having worked out this well. But I think, I mean, you know, there's one tweet that I saw that I really appreciated was that no look pass he threw on the final drive, which was just absolutely spectacular. You know, no one's been watching the Lions play. They don't know that Stafford does that routinely. Yeah. And if Mahomes had done that, much less on the game when he drive of the Super Bowl, the world would have melted. And yeah. so it's 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 something about the difficulty of really understanding players whenever we're in a 22, you know, 22 guys on the field at one time. Even yeah. the quarterbacks, if you play for the Detroit Lions, can be under the radar. It's really surprising. Yeah, no, and I mean, I think certainly nobody would have, you know, I I, I think – Nobody looked at Stafford on the Lions and said, this guy is exactly the piece they need to win the Super Bowl on the Rams. I mean, again, because I think there was a lot of chance that went into that outcome. But I mean, these guys do look at like, you know, they've got every tape on every single play at their disposal. And I think if you kind of look at the tape, you know, on Stafford versus Goff consistently, there probably is a very strong signal there that this guy is going to be like a 10% upgrade in the position or a 20% upgrade of the position. And at the position of such fundamental importance, I think those are the types of calculations that suddenly make like a first rounder worth it. Whereas Mm -hmm. I think we see first rounders traded in a lot of other contexts where, you know, I'm not sure the data would, the analytics would necessarily bear it out as much because either it's just not as important of a position to your chance of winning or, you know, the, the, the difference between the two players is a little bit less severe. Cause I think, you know, I think in this case, it just was a a relatively, uh, that was a relatively easy decision. Something like Vaughn, a first rounder for Vaughn Miller or something like that. That's a harder calculation. For a half, a half a season of Vaughn Miller? For a half a season, right. I mean, it, it really re- reminds me that we don't, at least people, that, not that I know of, somebody probably does somewhere, but no one has a good model of how all the pieces come together on the football yeah. field. I mean, even on one side of the football field, 11 pieces, there's so many interactions. Is that half season of Von Miller more valuable to the Rams because of Darnold and the other guys they already have on the line? Does that, is there convexity there? Is it more yeah. valuable because his ability to exploit, whenever you shift a little bit more of the offensive line towards Darnold, then his ability to exploit the remainder is just better than somebody else's? We yeah, I mean, we like, don't know enough about those interactions. Their success is also predicated on kind of having a, de- you know, I mean, Jalen Ramsey was another one of these kind Same of trade for multiple Same first thing. rounders, yeah, and was panned a lot back then because they're like, oh, how much, how important can one defensive back be? But again, if he's the one that's kind of a lot, essentially facilitating some of that amazing pass rush that the Rams are able to do as well, because he's kind of, he's the one helping to protect the other side, you know, the other side of that. That's amazing that that's, you know, that I mean, again, that's a non, one of these non-convex or like non-additive kind of non-additive. Right. Right. That's very difficult to estimate, I think. And very well, idiosyncratic to the particular players involved. Well, th- we've been asking for this. This is a bit of a, it's a minor theme on the show. We've been asking for this. This is one of the real frontiers and, American football analytics, and hopefully we'll get there with all the all the advanced stats. We should be able to get there eventually. But you're talking about you know high dimensionality in a sport that doesn't have that many observations, and so you, you just don't. It's hard to get there. Um, 
but we will get there eventually. And it's a really interesting set of questions. All right, guys, that has, oh, Adi, you want to jump in, please? Well, I did have a question because one of the observations I made during the Super Bowl, which which sort of conforms what I keep hearing in the analytics community, is that running on first down is overused. And it seems <laughs> that there was an enormous amount of that. Yeah. And and is that something that you guys point, noticed as well? Because it, it also seemed to be amazingly ineffective. You, you know, couldn't watch the game. Couldn't watch the game. Not effective. Yeah. Up no, until that last drive, the Rams were setting up for having like the, the worst rushing performance in a Super Bowl history. And one of the worst performances of the year. They Something like, you know, they went all game until the last drive without having a successful, you know, play success. Like either achieves yeah. you know, a binary outcome or it doesn't. And by that measure, they didn't have a single rushing play success until the final drive. And so people are all over Sean McVay about this. You can say the same thing about the Bengals. And I don't know if we're, you know, this is too much outcome bias or not, but Bengals on that first drive and their last drive, they had some of these conservative third and one, fourth and one calls where like, you've got this gunslinger of a quarterback, you've got these great um, wide receivers, and yet you're going to run up there and play a pretty conservative uh, call uh, in, into a very stout line and it, and, it, and not it, even it, use your best running back to do it. It was very weird. Yeah. So again, outcome bias, hindsight yeah. bias, all that, but Adi, I'm with you. And in fact, I, I thought about your tweet from a few weeks ago during the playoffs. You're like, why are these people running into the line on first down so much? <laughs> the, the question from Mars is often that is they're often cocky. The they feel like they don't, they don't need a full three downs to uh, four downs to get it. They can do it. in uh, right, man, last. right. Right. All right, guys, let's wrap this one. We've got one more quarter to go. We've got a fantastic guest rolling in here to talk. Get us up to speed on what's going on in Major League Baseball, this this labor dispute. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM, rolling into the fourth and final quarter. As you guys know, the fourth quarter has become our interview segment in the time of COVID. Here joining us today is Eugene Friedman. Eugene is a union lawyer currently working for the National Air Traffic Controllers Association. He's known as an expert on all things MLB, Major League Baseball labor negotiations. And we thought we'd have a little discussion with him to get caught up. Joining me. Eric Bradlow stepped away, but Audie Weiner's here. Shane Jensen is here. And this is Cade Massey. Eugene, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Can you, can you fill us in a little bit first on your background? How did you get involved in this kind of work? And where does your expertise on Major League Baseball labor negotiations come from? So um, I studied uh, industrial and labor relations in college and actually worked with a labor economics professor on an independent study. Uh, I guess it was my senior year, so it was 1996, just after the 94-95 uh, strike, uh, where I analyzed from, I guess, a, uh, a, a an undergraduate economics uh, expertise, uh, what the effects of a salary tax or a salary cap might be in baseball, um, coming out of the time period when uh, Major League Baseball had unilaterally imposed a salary cap. Uh, which was found to be an unfair labor practice uh, by uh, the NLRB and then by Judge Sotomayor, who is now justice on the Supreme Court, uh, mm -hmm. Sonia Sotomayor, um, where she sent the parties back to the table and restored the status quo ante. Now, so Eugene, can I ask a clarifying question? Yes. If, if 
salary caps are unfair labor practices for baseball. Why are they allowed in football? So it was not that the cap itself was an unfair labor practice. What it was was that the uh, the the league had unilaterally imposed terms and conditions of employment without bargaining to impasse. Okay. Uh, and in the absence of an in, impasse, it's considered uh, failure to bargain in good faith to yeah, unilaterally right. impose terms. Okay. So that's why why the salary cap was actually reversed at that point. Um, and, uh, and the parties were sent back to the table. They actually negotiated for two years without a collective bargaining agreement because the law maintains the status quo in the absence of a CBA. So uh, a- after uh, graduating, I went to law school. I focused on uh, labor and employment law there uh, in, my, in my second and third years. I clerked at the National Labor Relations Board uh, for member Sarah Fox, uh, full-time one semester. So I didn't actually have to go to class, uh, which was a, a real pleasure. Uh, uh-huh. and, and then, um, I actually, uh, became a union member first, uh, working at a uh, publishing company that used to be called the Bureau of National Affairs, uh, BNA, which for the last, I guess, 20 years has been owned by Bloomberg, um, where I was a member of the newspaper guild and served on one of our uh, contract negotiation team mm-hmm. uh, uh, for for a CBA negotiation, and then uh, went to work for um, a, a federal sector union, uh, doing mostly uh, labor arbitrations uh, for grievances, uh, midterm bargaining, a uh, variety of other things like organizing uh, political activity, uh, and then uh, came to work for NACA. Uh, mostly in the area of policy initially, but then started serving on our contract teams with the FAA. Um, and uh, and uh, as someone on the management side uh, within our union, I've negotiated uh, three CBAs with our staff union as well. So oh, wow. um, I, I guess all told, I've, I've negotiated, I think, 10 collective bargaining agreements and uh, innumerable midterm agreements. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how have you pursued your baseball interest, your interest in the baseball um, CBA in the time since you did these original studies back in school? So, I, you know, I've always followed baseball labor relations. Um, and I guess I followed uh, a lot of the early sabermetric guys on Usenet. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many of them participated in the founding of Baseball Prospectus. Um, And when, uh, I guess it was originally called Baseball Primer, uh, which is now Baseball Think Factory started, I posted periodically articles just on salary arbitration in baseball, how Mm -hmm. it differed from grievance arbitration, a couple other things. Um, And then I guess it was probably when uh, the uh, Alex Rodriguez um, discipline under the joint drug agreement was, uh, was going on. I started writing a little more, um, and in, in writing about that grievance arbitration process, um, I started really doing more in terms of baseball labor relations. And, uh, I started, uh, putting out a lot of information on just the process um, and you know, what is collective bargaining? Where is the duty to bargain? Uh, how does the law work? And, uh, also, uh, with the 2020 restart negotiations related to uh, the COVID shutdown, 
uh, and how that played out. I, I weighed in pretty heavily on that. And so this was just the natural extension. Got it. Well, listen, get us up to speed on where we are now with these relations. This is, you know, this, as we record this on Tuesday afternoon, some of the pitchers and catchers would have been reporting, which is a beautiful day on the calendar each year. We're not, no one's reporting right now. There, there's some concern that we're going to get opening day pushback if th- something happens soon. Uh, you know, as a very casual observer, I, I thought this wasn't supposed to be a big deal, you know, a couple months ago. But the way I read the tea leaves now is that it is becoming a big deal. So wh- what is the state of the negotiation for this contract? So, you know, normally parties get together well in advance of an expiration um, unless they have a really strong collaborative process and and then they can they can do it post expiration pretty quickly. Uh, Major League Baseball and the and the Players Association do not have a strong right. collaborative process. Right. Uh, so uh, they began uh, negotiating sometime during last season, but didn't really dive into it in earnest until I would say uh, November. Uh, the the CBA expired on December 1st. And on December 2nd, Major League Baseball uh, imposed a lockout. Right. Um, and a, a lockout is a, a management tactic. It's 100% within management's control. And it, it basically tells the employees that they're not permitted to come to work. Uh, they are not going to be paid. And uh, it's a pressure tactic. It's considered economic warfare. Uh, and it is basically done to put pressure on the employees to agree to management's proposed terms and conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, right after management imposed the lockout, Major League Baseball did nothing. Uh, it said that, you know, we're doing this to jumpstart negotiations. And then for 42 days, they didn't have a proposal. Um, and so I don't think they really meant to jumpstart things. I think they meant to delay things. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, that's basically uh, where we've been um, in, in this lockout. Management has slowed things down and uh, they they asked for a federal mediator. Um, they were not at impasse. Normally, mediators only participate in the process when the parties are at impasse. So the Players Association said, no, we'd mm-hmm. rather just continue negotiating in good faith. Um, and, you know, management took another two weeks. So. So uh, Eugene, the, this the is, this, I'm, sorry. I'm, I'm assuming ahead. I'm assuming this delay is because they think time is to their advantage. Like they're more willing to withstand stoppages than the players are. The players don't have enough reserves. The players will be hurt more financially or feel it more quickly. Is that the, is that a natural inference from the way? Or, or uh, just to add maybe some extra subtext, my reading of this situation is that the the, the owners kind of view the current the the collective bargaining agreement that just kind of ended as advantageous to them. They basically would like to, as much as possible, continue, like have the next CBA as similar as possible to the previous one. They're not, you know, I think the the players are the ones pushing for more kind of changes. So I don't know how much of this delay tactic is just to try and kind of like, again, sort of like continue to frame the old CBA as the, the sort of default option that they should be continuing. So management could continue the, the prior CBA without a lockout. Uh, as I said, the, the law favors the maintenance of terms and conditions of employment. So had management just wanted the prior agreement to remain in effect, they could have kept it going. Uh, there's a couple other 
things that were packed into that question. Uh, so let me try to unpack them. Uh, the first is that players aren't paid until opening day. So locking them out before opening day didn't really matter. Um, there's no economic effect on the players until they miss that first paycheck, um, which would be you know early April. Um, and the owners receive the bulk of their money um, through network, a, a large percentage of their money later in the season through the national TV contracts. Um, $58 million per team um, is paid generally August through the end of the playoffs. And, you know, that's a, that's what management, why management took control of this now because they didn't want the players striking in July or August uh, heading oh. into their large revenue period. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm assuming that the delays risk um, loss of games and with loss of games, players would lose compensation and this whole yeah. delay strategy. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's, uh, but it, yeah, I guess how much of it is going to be, how much is the leverage that the owners kind of are exhibiting right now due to the fact that the players are going to actually lose compensation versus like just trying to prevent, you know, them from striking mid season kind of as, as a way of pushing for a new CBA. So I guess there, there are a couple aspects here. I mean, one is that the competitive balance tax actually expired prior to the expiration of the CBA. So in, if, the the lockout had not occurred. The the um, Steve Cohen, for example, the owner of the Mets, could have continued uh, signing contracts for free agents without the risk of paying a competitive balance tax above whatever threshold the parties agreed to. Uh, mm -hmm. And the players did not have to agree to a, a tax at all. So basically, when when uh, Shane, you asked. Uh, did you know the players are asking for major changes management's also asking for two big things here one is the restoration or or treatment of a competitive balance tax uh, which the players have proposed as well so they've already kind of agreed that that will likely be in an agreement but also the expansion of the playoffs which would be a huge revenue gain for major league mm -hmm. baseball mm -hmm. um, and unless there's a specific agreement to add uh, shared revenue to to the players or guarantee revenue to the players that's just a windfall for owners mm -hmm. um, and so you know that's something that is very important uh, for management and without it um, I don't think they're interested in reaching an agreement so I think a lot of it is to create pressure starting opening day um, so that the players agree to these two big demands that management wants management has not proposed anything related to uh, the players' big asks, uh, which are to speed up the arbitration process, move it from uh, predominantly three years. There are a group of players called Super Twos who get it uh, earlier than that, uh, but also um, to reduce revenue sharing uh, because the players believe that the levels of revenue sharing that exist in the current agreement um, basically encourage teams not to play to win uh, because they're going to be guaranteed a large revenue amount, regardless of how hard they try. And the pirates are a really good example. Uh, the pirates are going to be getting that $58 million in shared revenue uh, from the national TV contracts. They get $50 million from their local TV, uh, from their regional sports network. 
they also get between 20 and $30 million of shared revenues from the commissioner's fund. Um, and so you're talking about $130 million before they even sell a ticket, uh, sell any merchandise, uh, sell any concessions, uh, et cetera. And in light of that, you'd think that they're, they would be able to be competitive in salary, but the pirates always uh, for the last decade have kept their salary between 50 and $60 million. Um, and so there's a guaranteed profit through this revenue sharing that it doesn't matter if they try to win and the pirates don't try to win. So you've named, you named two big issues on both sides. Let me just recap them as far as I can follow. One is that the owners are interested in a playoff expansion, which is a huge revenue expansion. And presumably as long as there's some share of in football, that would just flow right through because there's revenue sharing. There's a big number that they split, but that's a big decision to make on, on whether, you know, change the sport and change revenue. The other was this, this competitive balance tax, which is a way of kind of rainy. It's a commitment device to keep some owners from not going crazy with the way they spend, right? It's a way of keeping a rain on these guys on the player side, you named arbitration earlier in a player's career. And then less revenue sharing between teams to kind of increase the competitiveness um, and increase what they're, what they're um, willing to pay the players. Why don't they just do increase the minimum salary? Isn't there a minimum yeah, I was salary? Say that- like a, like there should be like a floor or something like that. So they, the players association has uh, fought having a floor uh, for many decades because they believe if there's a floor, there's going to be a hard ceiling. Uh, what there is is a minimum salary, uh, which is a league minimum. They also have a minimum for the 15-man rosters uh, who, who are in the minor leagues. Uh, that 40-man roster, 25 are in the majors, and, and 15 are in the minors. Uh, and the 15 receive uh, significantly lower money. They receive uh, between fifty dollars and $80,000, depending on their, their experience level. But uh, in the majors, uh, I believe the minimum right now in the expired agreement is $570,000. Uh, to keep up with inflation, uh, my understanding is it would have to be around $710,000 uh, because it did not really increase in the last CBA. Um, however, um, Management is proposing a very nominal increase, and the Players Association is asking for 675, I believe, in the first year of the CBA, uh, and increasing in in subsequent years. So that's that's a point of discussion. But putting in a, a a salary floor based on shared revenue is not something the Players Association has proposed or even considered. You know, I, I want to just jump in here for just. A- as a important, you know, as a baseball fan, thinking representing baseball fans, this whole controversy or lack of agreement is hurting the game, and it, and people are just furious that they haven't made an agreement that there's uh, spring training is not going to start, and that the season might get delayed, and all these de- details are, I guess, are interesting to those who are kind of close to it, but most of the world doesn't really give a shit. And is anybody thinking about the future of the game? I mean, the players care more, the, the managers, the management care more, the commissioner care more. Who's pushing to make this thing happen so that baseball doesn't just go south as it has been as, as a national sport for many years now? So I think part of it is that uh, management is looking at this and, and me- most of the team owners are looking at this just in terms of uh, revenue and profit. Um, they're seeing it as any other investment they see. 
huge. It, it's not necessarily the annual profit year over year, although a lot of teams are very profitable. Uh, it's also the, the increased valuation of the franchises over time. So you might buy a team this year for a billion dollars. In 10 years, it's likely going to be significantly more than $3 billion, just based on the, the, the rate of returns that have come in. Uh, Maury Brown did an interesting piece in Forbes this week uh, where he, he looked at uh, the revenue value, uh, excuse me, the, the team valuations and how they've grown uh, because the commissioner made a false statement uh, that uh, it's lagged behind the S&P 500 uh, over the last 20 years. And that's demonstrably false. Uh, so <laughs> a lot of these these owners want to own the team for five to 10 uh, to, to at most 20 years and then turn the team over. Uh, they also get a, um, uh, a tax benefit for depreciating salaries for the first uh, few years that they own a team. So so that uh, actually helps them. Um, in, in terms of their their uh, tax bills, if they do report a profit, um, and on the player side, you know their careers are relatively short. Uh, most players don't make it to that first free agent contract after six years. Um, I think I read that forty um, percent of the players last year were playing uh, at the league minimum, uh, and among them, their average salary for their career so far was about $360,000. And that's because they're spending some of that time in AAA making the 50 to $80,000. And then the rest of the time in the majors making the minimum, but they're back and forth and it's on a per day basis, whether they're, they're getting the, the major league minimum or that minor league negotiated salary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess I kind of want to come back to this, you know, cause you again, brought up the kind of league minimum. So there is actually a floor on spending it's just at a such a low level that it's not really a competitive floor like you know i mean you know what in terms of kind of kind of competitive balance of the game the floor would have to be kind of in the range of like you know 50 to 60 million dollars per team because you know some of the you know some of the teams are spending in like the three four hundred million, so you'd have to at least get it up to that. And of course, like adding up you know league minimum salaries of less than like you know like a half a million across is not going to get you there, basically. Right. But- so so the Mets right now, uh, and they don't have a full roster. Uh, they're at about two hundred and forty-five million dollars. They have the most committed for yeah. next year, and the Orioles have the lowest amount committed for next year, and I think it's in the range of thirty-three million dollars. So you're talking, uh, you know, a significant difference, not just in dollars, but a significant difference in percentage. Uh, you know, eight, sure. one team is spending eight times what another team is spending, and it's I don't, I don't understand. Union- Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, I, it's the players union argument that if you kind of made that disparity less, like you force, say, for example, like teams to at least pay, spend their, their shared revenue, like, you know, you have to put your shared put that 58 million or whatever into players that that somehow by decreasing that competitive advantage, that would actually reduce salaries that would keep teams from the Yankees or Mets from trying to sign as many big contracts because they wouldn't, it wouldn't confer as much of a competitive advantage. I'm just, I guess I'm trying to get at this kind of player argument against the floor being like a very large kind of competitive floor in the 50 to 60 million range. 
um, you know, kind of arguing Higher. against that because they don't want a cap. I mean, the, the, yeah, two don't it, it, the two don't necessarily go together unless you think it's going to affect team spending at the top end. Yeah, and, and the teams have been very limited by the competitive balance tax. I think there were five or six teams that came just below the $210 million threshold last year. So they're treating – a lot of the teams are treating it as a hard cap. Mm-hmm. Well, I, we're going to have to do this on another occasion, Eugene, because we're going to run out of time here. But what I, it, as, a, as a negotiation professor, it quickly feels to be like a relationship issue. These guys don't have the collaborative – environment collaborative relationship that's needed and it really stands in contrast to what we see in some other leagues well at least with the nba which is kind of among the four big north american leagues the best you why i we we, we don't have time to again but in, in a in a in a thimble why is it that they have such a hostile relationship they need to trade these issues they're not even trading the issues yeah i think one of the biggest problems with the baseball negotiators at least on the management side particularly is that they don't even try to address the the um, interests of the players. Um, they they take very positional stance and they don't engage in any interest based bargaining. That's not negotiation. It's um, like that's uh, like buying a rug in Istanbul. I mean, come on, this is a little bit more sophisticated than that. My God, it should be. It should be. Well, listen, uh, we'll, we'll have to have you back. Hopefully, this is not a long enough. Uh, dispute to need to have you back but i kind of suspect we're going to need to have you back eugene thank you for taking the time helping us understand where we are unfortunately you've not left me any more optimistic but i do feel better informed thank you eugene thanks for having me on guys eugene friedman union lawyer uh currently with the national air traffic controllers association and history with the major league baseball labor negotiations that has been two hours of sports analytics another two hours here on sirius xm for the whole crew, Shane Jensen, who stayed with me here to the end. Adi Weiner had to step away. Eric Bradlow had to step away. For Matty D, the boss man for Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.